Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs, Inc. My name is Tedon Konsakar. In today's episode, the first in a two-part series, we have Saumitra Nirpane, Executive Director of Policy Entrepreneurs, in conversation with Ajay Dixit. Ajay is the co-founder and advisor at the Institute for Social and Environmental Transition, IZET Nepal. He is an Ashoka Fellow and a leading voice in Nepal and internationally on issues of climate change adaptation, resilience building, and disaster risk management. In this first episode, Saumitra and Ajay discuss the outcomes of the recently concluded COP27, including the issue of loss and damage. They also cover the issue of climate change and what it means for countries like Nepal and the Himalayan region. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the show, Ajay. Really excited about today's conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Somitriji, for having me. I really look forward to this conversation. Well, I was preparing for this conversation and I realized that I wanted to discuss so many things with you. But because we have so many topics to cover, we will be releasing our recording as two episodes. In the first part, we'll cover the outcomes and achievements of the recently concluded COP27 and slowly ease into the conversation about climate change impact in Nepal and the Himalaya region. In the second part, we will get into a more specific discussion about climate change, its impact on hydropower sector, and the development pathway of the country. Shall we get started? Of course. Looks looks challenging, but let's try. <laughs> so, Ajay, how do you evaluate COP27's overall impact on moving the climate agenda forward? How far has this conversation evolved since COP26? Well, I... I, I came from my place where I live in Balwatar. You know, I took a motorbike, you know, a patao. And then I was uh, as I was coming, and it was a nice, warm morning. You know, a little bit cold, so I had to have a muffler. And then, of course, uh, there were lots of cars and motorbike, not too much traffic, and, you know, a little bit of a pollution. But life was going on, you see. It's just after the rainfall. We just finished our elections. So everything looks nice, hunky-dory. But... Up there in the mountains, you see the, the global climate, the atmosphere is not what it used to be, say, 100, 150 years ago. Something else is going on there, and that's why COP26 and COP27 become important. But as, as with regards to the progress that the COP27 has made, where was that point of departure when we ended COP26? Well, I think we, we, we need to go back a year. We need to reflect or talk about COP26, right? COP26 was uh, in a very different uh, circumstance, global. And of course, from Nepal's perspective, Alok Sharma was here, the minister. He visited Mustang. And then there was a lot of sort of brouhaha and hype about the UK minister coming, talking about climate change impacts. Nepal's visibility was perhaps a little bit higher than what it was. So was our commitments? Well, I think, you know, our prime minister was there. And he said, you know, we're going to attend uh, net neutral by 2045 and of course uh, the loss and damage was also something uh, Nepal talked about uh, but then something drastically changed after COP26. The Ukraine war, the emerging geopolitics, the tension between these big emitters if you will and of course the assumption was that the COP27 is going to be kind of a no-go you know there's the international environment is not conducive to uh, get into a sort of consensus on some of these 
complex issue. Yet, we see some interesting and perhaps an historic decision regarding loss and damage in, in, in Egypt. Yeah, this is where, where I wanted to expand the conversation more. So this year's COP uh, was heavily about loss and damage. And as you said, while broadly still sitting outside, we did not expect strong commitments, but loss and damage seemed to be the primary conversation for COP27. And the delegates had to go to overtime to fetch a deal on loss and damage. Can you talk about what this agenda actually is, when it started, and why does it rank so very high as an interest for developing countries? You know, I remember in the mid-90s, that decade when I started to work on climate change, I remember once in uh, Bangladesh, I was in a conference and there was a participant from you know, one of these small island nations in, in the Pacific. And of course, he was very passionate and concerned about the fact that their country might not exist 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now as sea level rise due to, due to climate change. And of course, you know, after, being, after having just started some look into climate change dimension, you know, I was kind of a little bit sort of, you know, surprised. What the hell is guys, this person is talking about? But then when you go into literature, you find out that this idea of loss and damage, not exactly in that words or in that semantics, but in connection with sea level rise and kind of insurance against that threat, Vanuatu, you know, in 1991, this was even before UNFCCC began, you know, had raised this issue of compensation in, in some sense, if we will, you know, because the emission of greenhouse gases, particularly by the rich countries, historically, you know, has been one of the major factors that's making climate more erratic. Uh, but then subsequently in some of these, uh, you know, in, in most of these conversation, loss and damage didn't figure. You know, it was mostly about mitigation. mitigation. Uh, even adaptation was a poorly, poorly recognized cousin. Uh, it was only after 2000, and perhaps even around 2005, 2006, 2007, adaptation began to get more traction in UNFCC conversation. And then it was in Bali, 2007, when the idea of loss and damage found kind of an entry into the, uh, into the UNFCC process. And then, of course, uh, this has been guided by the fact that the climate disasters are becoming more extreme, they're becoming more frequent, they are magnitude is more than that used to be in the past. So therefore, developing countries, the vulnerable developing countries are unable to adapt to or respond to the kind of uh, climate impact that's being faced. So therefore, that the damage and loss that they face needs to have some kind of a support, stewardship, and so on and so forth. But I think in the conversation, the whole idea was on the question of uh, compensation and mm -hmm. liability, historical responsibility. Indeed, the UNFCC process did recognize CBDR, common but differentiated right. responsibilities. But this idea of compensation was no, no in the UNFCC process. And it went on like that for a long time. And then, of course, in 2021 COP, you know, it was after COVID. It was perhaps the first physical COVID. President Biden was coming. This was last year in Glasgow. This was last year in Glasgow. And of course, Glasgow was where it all began, you know, when the steam engine, etc., the industrial revolution, etc. So perhaps there was lots of expectations, you know, of what would happen in Glasgow. But then, you know, they 
reaffirm the commitment of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the Paris goal. Uh, there was this dialogue of uh, phasing out or phasing down coal, but it didn't happen. It was watered down to phasing, I think the, the terminology was uh, not phasing down, but gradually phasing, phasing out, out, fading out. And of course, the question of financing. In conversations in, since 2009, the Copenhagen conference, uh, when rich countries were expected to pay $100 billion, that didn't come out. And then, of course, loss and damage was, again, something that didn't happen in COP26. But subsequently, you know, what triggered was, I think, this devastating flood in Pakistan. Yeah, this is where I wanted to yeah. kind of get, is in the sense, it almost felt like this issue was at some point a precipice, in the sense, and it was backed by global events. I was thinking Pakistan as well. Exactly. I mean, if you look at the events, you have rivers drying up, you have heat waves, you have massive wildfires, you have extreme rainfall, you have floods. And then, of course, these were going on. You know, you had examples in Europe, you had examples in Africa, you had in China. But I think the Pakistan flood was final uh, nail in the coffin that the magnitude of this disaster was, you know, unprecedented. The rainfall, the floods, the impact, the amount of damage that happened, number of people who were affected. So I think it really emphasized the fact that, hey, wait a minute, this is something we need to do. And then, of course, there were, you know, I do recognize, you know, a lot of people from South Asia, including others, you know, friends and others, we've been in this uh, advocacy and arguments for a long, long time, demanding that the rich countries pay the for the damages for the you know losses and damages so i think in that sense i think this this is an indeed was was historical yeah as now that there's been an historic agreement on establishing a loss and damage facility how do you see this going forward in a sense how is it going to be implemented i for myself i'm not clear as to who's going to put in money how and who's going to actually benefit from from this pool of funds that's what's the, your impression on yeah, this that's the details questions, isn't it, Samitra? It is. You know, I mean, but your it, initial impressions yeah, of I think, how do you see I this I think you, you, you've kind of highlighted it quite well. Uh, yes, the agreement was on fund. If you look at, if you again go back to COP27, uh, Scotland put a little bit of money and it was it was named stewarding money, you know, sort of a, a partnership money, not not in that compensation sense. So again, in, in COP27, the language was not on compensation reparation, but it was on agreement to establish a fund. But then what fund, how much, who puts in money, where does the money come from, how it will be disbursed, what will be the criteria, those are the details that need to be worked out. And then I think I think it's going to be a bitter fight as we go on. And then the, the next COP, it's probably going to be about <laughs> uh, UAE. And then let's not forget, it's, it's, it's a petrodollar state, you know, th- that's going to be the, you know, COP chairman in 2000, uh, 2023. And then, of course, uh, you know, we can talk about it. Uh, we can talk about loss and damage as this historical achievement. But then again, uh, in COP27, we have a story where, you know, uh, lobbyists from, you know, petro companies, etc., where working behind the scene and in watering down 
the kind of ambitions on 1.5 degrees Celsius. You stole my uh, <laughs> upcoming <laughs> question. So, so I, uh, on, on loss and damage, um, I was reading through a few newspapers after COP and uh, it was dubbed a historic win and abysmal fail in the sense that the demand and focus on loss and damage took precedence over climate change mitigation. Some European countries have kind of traced this um, and that the focus on curbing fossil fuels, reducing greenhouse gas uh, emissions, bringing down temperature to 1.5 degree uh, thresholds, it really didn't see a lot of attention. How do you see this? Is this a signal that countries are quite content that um, they cannot come within the threshold of 1.5 degrees and rather pay their way through loss and damage? I hope that's not correct. I, don't, I, I, <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Because uh, regardless of this historical decision to begin begin this, provide this fund, we still have to address the emission problem. You know, we can't let emissions just go like that. We can't just pump in gas into the atmosphere and then the weather becoming more erratic and then becoming more extreme and then loss of damage is increasing and therefore going on paying for the damages. I think the UNFCC had two legs of negotiation, mitigation and adaptation. And I think the demand was to include loss and damage as the third leg. So I think that's been achieved. So I would hope that the focus would continue to be on all three, on mitigation, on adaptation, on loss and damage. Because we still need to adapt. We still need to find out a way, we'll, perhaps we'll talk about as we, uh, you know, as we go on, but I, th- I hope that's not true, that we have not forgotten 1.5 degree sort of our aspirations and then say oh well you know it's 1.5 is something that's not achievable so therefore uh, let's go on with our ongoing business I don't let's let's hope that's not that's not the case yeah I just want to be um, critical for a moment step back and look at how that conversation has been evolving and I see a lot of times uh, for developing countries while the impact and damages and losses from climate change is there the focus sometimes feels that they're heavily on climate financing. So it's always that conversation that seems to inform how countries are positioning. So I kind of feel scared. Um, Maybe scared is not the right word, but I have a reservation of how countries are positioning with loss and damage and how this might move the conversation for uh, regressively against climate change mitigation. So you have raised an interesting point, and that's something we really have to be careful. Uh, that entire focus on financing perhaps could lead to, you know, our attentions and other important factors being diluted. The focus on mitigation, the focus on decarbonization, the focus on increasing penetration of renewable energies into the system, and then adaptation. You know, if you look at, say, the monsoon of 2022, we had floods, we had a little bit of landslides. 2021, October after monsoon was officially declared over, you know, where this extreme rainfall in the west, also in Uttarakhand, and then the weather system moved east and in East Nepal. Unfortunately, the forecasting, the warning was accurate, you know, fairly accurate forecasting in the sense of saying, all right, we're going to get extreme rainfall. Yet, yet we had damages. We had damages of standing paddy, we had damages of road, and so on and so forth. So therefore, that tells us that, tells us that 
yes weather might be extreme disaster might come but we need to be prepared for addressing concerns of the farmers money is important but they also need food they also need to protect their paddy that was almost ready for harvest how do you do that how do you do that at scale who's responsible is the center central state or the provincial government or the local government how does that ecosystem work so those are very very important question and i think we should not let our attention divert away from this particular challenge at the heart of this whole conversation is curbing mitigation right how do you address mitigation problems of climate change i i think this has been a great round up of cop 27 and uh, while feels that they've been important Uh, achievements especially with loss and damage facility um sure looks uh, that there are still things to be defined and it would be interesting to observe how how things unfold in the next cop but before i let you go on uh, cop 27 as, as a point of interest for nepal were there anything else that nepal positioned during cop 27 or any topics of interest besides loss and damage that nepal was pursuing Well I think we did talk about the mountain challenges and the mountain agenda which I think has been something that Nepal has been advocating for a long time. Uh, I think it was then the you know normal agenda of the UNFCCC processes as a part of least developing country court with often we are part. And then of course those who are in the in the conference must have participated in a lot of this you know side events and other kind of conversation but of course you know those are something we can just guess and maybe those who were in the in the conference can tell us more uh, more about what transpired there i just wanted to highlight one couple one point on loss and damage you see last year uh, i was involved in preparing the national strategy for loss and damage uh, government of nepal what we did was to look at the state of play uh, we looked at the global politics we looked at the ways in which loss and damage are assessed you know what would be the method and what i found out we found out that yes it's a important area serious area but we still don't have those you know systematic methods of assessing we know what is loss we know what is damage uh, we know what is economic loss what is not non economic loss but how do you assess it what systematic method we use to assess that how do you assess damage that will happen say 5 years from now right so those are very conceptually and operationally difficult challenges that we need to think about so uh, loss and damage it almost feels that you need a lot of uh, credible data to yeah, yeah. to make decisions around loss and damage especially countries would be interested to who are ready to fund would say where is the data what is the basis for you to make this decision do you think there is enough data or that data ecosystem in the region itself for us to make accurate estimates on loss and damages for any form of future compensation that's a million dollar question somitra <laughs> uh, what would be the answer well answer would be difficult you know uh, let me look at data data architecture in nepal you know if you look at the 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 literature and if you look at the literature you would find you know different sources you would find floods and landslides and snake bites and wind fire all these hazards causing disaster and you would find lot of fragmentation in that literature last several years at least we have one portal the portal that is maintained by the ministry of home and with the um, 
disaster management authority at least you have now a coherent systematic a platform where you get this data right but this data system again you have the death fairly accurate you have those who are injured fairly accurate missing uh, and then you have uh, economic damages in terms of you know how much houses are damaged how much crop is you know lost but then you go to other infrastructure system you go to hydropower you go to roads you go to bridges you go to agriculture loss those damages don't find salience into the uh, data architecture it is still siloed within respective sector so there is lot of work that needs to be done lot of work that is to be done as to who's collecting the data at what level using what methods how do you ensure that coherence so that's a that's a area for not just climate change but also for disaster risk reduction absolutely so these two area kind of you know coalesce into one floods exacerbated by climate change extreme events extreme rainfall that leads to floods but it's just not the extreme event that leads to flood it's also the landscape i'm sure we'll talk about as we go on but so this is this is something where Nepal really needs to focus on focus on that we doing our homework we doing correct assessment what's going on we build the institution and we need support you know we need support to do that we need engagement with international actors other communities and then of course we we could talk about attribution but then maybe as we continue for some other time maybe or some other time yeah excellent this is a great round off for cooperants and thank you You have been listening to Pods by PEI. I am Chadon Kansakar, and this is a quick reminder to all of you to do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. Now, let us get back to the conversation between Samitra and Ajay. Ajay, before we go further on discussing the issues of climate change and what it means for countries like Nepal, what might be of help for some of our listeners who may not be attuned to this topic is if you could shed light on some key concepts and terminologies from the climate change discourse, meaning and interpretations to word like risk, resilience, adaptation, attribution, etc. I'm sure the the meanings are much more nuanced than what it is used in common parlance. Thank you for asking that question Somitra you know I've been working in this uh, climate uh, dynamics maybe for about now how many 20 25 30 years and when I started I had challenge I had difficulties you know let me start with adaptation in the 90s the discourse was Nepal needs to adapt Nepal needs to adapt to climate change now somebody who just started looking into this uh, dynamics I was intrigued what does Nepal adapt mean you know Nepal is a diverse country we have himal we have mountains we have valleys we have tarai we have east we have west olang chungola in the east is very different from you know kailali and kanchanpur so i was kind of very intrigued you know what does that mean of course i had no answers and of course the conversation was also you know global conversation was perhaps also led more uh, not nuanced So as we worked on we part of this research ecosystem uh, we tried to find out what does that mean in terms of practical use what does it mean for a 
a normal individual, a working individual who's not aware of these uh, different terminologies. So we try to conceptualize adaptation as, of course, there is IPCC and other excellent definitions, you know, done by exceptional individuals who have studied, put up these uh, definitions. So we said, okay, in a practical terms, adaptation is about changing your strategy. You have something that you do, you face a stress, you face a shock. That means that the normal approach that you have taken to respond doesn't work. So you have that skill, you have that wherewithal, you have the ability to switch strategy and do well. That's the, that's the way we begin to explain that. Now coming back to these terminologies, I talk a lot of, with my friends you know, who are not in the climate business, but educated engineers, doctors, lawyers, others. And I say, do you follow climate change? I say, yes, we do follow, but I think there are people who are working on it, they will find some answers. I ask them, like, what does WIM mean? <laughs> you know, with loss and damage, there is this terminology called Warsaw Institutional Mechanism. So those who are in this discourse would understand it. Although, other one is a Santiago network. People would understand it, but for many it will be absolutely, you know, what does it mean nobody understands. Similarly with risk and resilience, right? What does risk mean? You can define risk technically, potential harm that can happen in the future. And I think COVID has helped us perhaps understand that idea better. Just a small interjection. Uh, the, you mentioned like early 90s, beginning with adaptation. Looking at the climate change terminology discourse, it almost feels that that too is evolving. These oh, days. Yeah. So from adaptation, now the conversation seems to be heavily around risk and resilience. Indeed. Adaptation was an evolving knowledge. Humans have adapted to climate variability, the natural climate variability. Even if you look at our own landscape, you know, our ancestors have been around for thousands of years, you know, within the limitations. But what does adaptation to anthropogenic climate change mean? Human action induced climate change. Mm -hmm. We're talking about perhaps much more shorter time, time scale. We're not talking about 100, 200 years. So in the 90s, uh, if I remember, and when we worked, we thought we had time. We thought we had time to understand what adaptation means, identify its attributes, put systems in place, change policies, etc. And then at the end of the day, you know, we'll be able to deal with the you know extreme climates that's coming in. Unfortunately, the pace of change has been extremely rapid over the last you know five to ten years. The emission has gone up, weathers have become more erratic. Of course, then scientists tell us, you know, WMO and others tell us that, you know, things are becoming more and more, uh, more and more critical. But seems to me, you know, some of this conversation, some of these conversations have to be simplified. Some of these con conversations, I think, have to be communicated well. From jargon, we have to go to day-to-day -day language, something that people can connect. That Absolutely. You know, that's very important. So why these terminologies like risk and resilience and, you know, greenhouse gas and conference of parties and scenarios and, you know, national adaptation plan of action and local adaptation plan of actions are fine. But we need to expand the conversation. We need to expand the conversation and make it a business of perhaps common men because the problem is universal. It's just not the responsibility of the experts. You know, the experts have to be 
brought into demystifying if you will this 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 uh, knowledge it's just not a technical problem it's a political problem it's also a cultural problem it's also about our behavior that then you know makes it really is a, as a, as a you know you know serious challenge if you would take an attempt to demystify the current buzzwords around risk and resilience these two seem to be quite popular around climate change discourse how would you explain that to a lay person i'll tell you a story you know we we're, we're working on a, on a on a study on the gandaki basin and in pokhara we had all these uh, partners from mustang in a meeting and then i was trying to explain uh, resilience and i said oh well, resilience is a capacity to bounce back uh, into your previous state and there was this teacher you know dhanakumari uh, garbuja and she said sir that's not right hmm. coming back to your previous state means to a condition where we have no water we have no electricity we have no road that is not what we think should be coming back to then i realized lost in translation we were not able to communicate you know the the the, the exact meaning so i said well, well i said well then resilience would be an inner strength inner strength to deal with difficulties in life it could be at a personal level it could be at a organizational level it could be at a community level and then do well do better than that we are doing before you face that stress so that's how i try for example things like uh, migration if you will you know we talk about um, push and pull factors you know migration is uh, fostered by pull and push factors so we say instead of that we don't say you know cities are magnets you know cities are where everyone wants to come you get job you know you get new opportunities you get employment so perhaps avoiding jargons they might be needed in you know academic and other kind of conversations but at least with common folks avoid those jargons find out simple words find out local words if you will all right don't go into some this you know abstract translation if i could use the word adaptation in nepali we call it anukulan you know for oh, that's uh, a difficult word for that's me. a difficult word you know i can't talk with my wife or my or the colleagues about oh i face the difficulty so i get anukulan no it is all right all right or even resilience you know resilience is uthana uh, shilata it might be good in writing but then it doesn't fit into the conversation right not at all not at all so those are those are the challenges i think and, and the risk is bit complex you see i mean how do you understand what harms that might happen to you in the future again if i look at two years of of covid let me you know sort of you know try my try my try my uh, effort let's see if you have a medical condition if you have preconditions if you have not well you are not washing your hand you are not putting mask right you are not maintaining basic sanitations etc and then you go to a crowd in a covid situation of course you know you are likely to get contracted by the disease but if you put mask if you wash hand if you avoid crowds if you do all kind of things that's been told you not to do then you're kind of safe from uh, safe from that uh, from that exposure climate change is hard because so many things are happening floods floods are extreme event in mustang all right 2021 we had extreme event in manang and mustang those regions basically get snowfall this time that time there was rainfall 
high intensity rainfall or we looked at the image and said wow kasto pani parecha haina so lots of rains and all but then you know two days later it just goes out of our memory and then it becomes responsibilities of those individuals to face it so i think that's a challenge you see and that's a challenge of how do you really make it a people's concern until it affects you personally you're not perhaps you know as much connected or concerned so if i am to oversimplify this um, the key takeaway for me please correct me if i am wrong is that um, when we're talking about climate change mm-hmm. broadly uh, a lay understanding would be about extreme events and how that might unfold while extreme events like rainfall and or slow induced changes like glaciers melting while it might have its own categorical risks but really risk and resilience is defined by how you've kind of embedded that particular risk event into a broader system of how society is governed operated so things like the policies that you have created the institutions that you have the kind of people you have um, behind these institutions they really matter to define what what risks and resilience shape how we deal with climate change thank you thank you somitra i think you you kind of really simplified it climate change impact doesn't happen just like that it doesn't happen in one one element of society it's just not a people who will be hit people are hit indeed if you are in the harms way for example if you are affected by floods if people live on the flood plain why do people live on the flood plain people don't live on flood plain by choice or somebody gets hit by landslide you know you live on landslide prone areas nobody likes to live in landslide prone areas so there are social and historical and other kind of processes that defines that 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 dynamics right but then but then exposure is important so is the hazard so in such an exposed position if you have extreme rainfall clearly you know Uh, you're going to be affected. Now that extreme rainfall is not a aberration. We used to have extreme rainfall in the past, but the point is that this extreme rainfall, the change in atmospheric energy by greenhouse gases, has changed that dynamics. So therefore, the rainfall is more erratic. And then, of course, you've said so. It's the people who get affected. It's the infrastructure that we have built that get affected. and then what are the infrastructure roads drinking water irrigation systems uh, water supply health schools right uh, communication they get hit they get services and then how do the infrastructures get affected how have we built them how have we designed them how do we maintain them do we consider specificity for example of a hill slope its geology its water dynamics in aligning a road that becomes important and then that takes us back to as you have rightly pointed out our policies our norms our behavior the way we do engineering etc so broadly we can group them into hazard and exposure hazard is event event like rainfall or event like glof or event like uh, extreme wind we had one extreme wind in bara in 2000 few years ago few years few years ago so that's that's one and then then you have this infrastructure that we have built 
you have the natural system that we have in place now nature gives us services it gives us water it gives us air it gives us other kind of services and people use that and then of course you have the uh, rules and regulations and you have managers who manage infrastructure so it's this composite that determines whether risk is high or vulnerability high or resilience is lowered or accumulated excellent i mean this is a really fascinating framework and i want to take this forward and kind of nuance this on the topic of climate change in nepal um, given your long and continued engagement on the topic uh, i would like to hear from you about the significance of climate change in nepal uh, my point of interest being as a nepali should my interest and concern be limited to what the global narrative is around global warming and the melting of the himalayas as i try and its related consequences or there is more for me as a nepali to show concern for given your systemic um, your framework on what you just described well first of all i think it's a, it's a global problem the problems genesis or origin is outside the border outside our border outside our territory outside our sovereign boundary so it's kind of a, is a is a is a is a global common the global atmosphere which is being subjected to if we will different kind of changes you know that started you know during the industrial revolution industrial era that's why in climate conversation we always talk about 1.5 degree above industrial average 2 yeah. degree because in industrial average that's an important point for us to recognize because the reference point uh, reference is this era which is 150 years ago and that was of course a historical economic financial colonial process that was at work and of course industrial revolution gave us benefits it 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 gave humanity benefit it allowed us to address poverty it allowed us to get medicines minimize disease etc etc uh, but then it also had its externality in the form of a emissions perhaps it was not accounted for early in the in the in the in the period if if it was costed well perhaps you know we'd be in a different territory but the fact of the matter is now it's a reality so therefore we cannot discount or we cannot forget this global dimension and there is a huge politics that globally and we talked about it mm-hmm. you know there is power behind it there are interest behind it at least we don't talk much but then if you go to the western society there are deniers there are those who says climate change hasn't happened all right and we saw that in the us in the, in the last election the new administration came they withdrew from the paris agreement all right so therefore that's a political reality and that still exists so we need to recognize that but then but then country like nepal are in the sort of you know front line of climate impact number one ours is a diverse country as we talked earlier we have himal we have hills and valleys and tarai now each of them have unique ecosystem they have unique climate and then of course there is unique social arrangement within this ecosystems where we have lived and we have we have survived we could question how we have survived we have our own limitations we have our challenge even within our you know national boundary some of us are doing well others not doing well question of representation question of social exclusion so on so forth but fact of the matter is the global process the global phenomena is having an impact Yeah, and you uh, see that you see that impact say more directly perhaps on snow 
mm-hmm. you know you you get snow more more directly you know you see that in sea level rise you can directly relate increasing temperature to sea level rise or the melting of the snow or the melting of the snow but when you come to rainfall it's a little bit dicey it's it's very you hard have local weather patterns yeah you have local weather patterns we don't have enough uh, data sets to link it to the global system scenarios have limitations model have limitations temperature wise we can be more sure historical records model studies our own experience tells us that temperatures are rising that's more monotonic but rainfall is difficult you know we can say rainfall is becoming more erratic that there is a trend but it's still very difficult to attribute one weather event to climate change just coming back to uh, the discussion in nepal and um, i recognize the fact that there is a global phenomenon and it's not just what nepal is doing that has impact on climate change but uh, coming back to our early conversation on risks um you you mentioned institutions infrastructure natural ecosystem what are the critical risk factors do you think that are really exponentially increasing nepal's uh, exposure to climate change and its impacts internal uh, risk factors i think well we have an aspiration for development that's that's fine uh, we want better healthcare we have better education for our kids we have better commuting better access to market those are fine those are something that citizens aspire and that's the responsibility of the state but i think the challenge or problem emerges when you know we don't recognize the 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 specificity of our landscape for example if you talk about the hills of nepal these are not rocky mountains or the alps these are geologically young mountain ranges these are fragile so you cannot intervene in this fragility without recognizing the specificity let's look at road building for example road are necessary no doubt about that but the way we are building roads in the in the in the in the hills as we call in nepal dozare roads you know road, yep. roads that's essentially designed or aligned by excavator or dozer drivers do, do not heed to geology do not heed to the 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 environment do not heed to water flow do not heed to hydrology so what you essentially have is you know you dig a track and then next morning you have a massive rainfall and that everything comes down so therefore both are important yeah, you know? this is something that we've also studied so i would urge our listeners to go and check out pi's website to see the political economy of local roads uh, this is something that we've tracked ourselves yeah i mean i've also done a uh, done a study on political economy of roads for 2022 landslides and very clearly we i'm sure your studies does that too that road building practice has influence on you know how landslide have occurred so the practice of development how do we align our aspiration for development the need for development with this emerging risk you need to begin to again go back to science we need to understand how climate and the weather pattern is changing we need to invest in scientific paraphernalia we need to think about how we design our infrastructure how we design our roads we need to go back to our codes our design assumptions we need to look at our policies we need to look at the capacity of individuals we need to look at capacity of those who manage stuff so so clearly clearly somitra there is a there is a case for you know doing things differently 
Absolutely, I agree, and I I would like to engage on the point that you made that uh, role of policies and institutions really matter in how um, we we make choices around climate change in the reality of climate change. And at this point in time, I I would like to ask you, Ajay. What is the current policy architecture around climate change, and how do you think is, is the current structure of policies responding to what you just said on rethinking of how we do development here in Nepal? First of all, let let me take a little bit of a sort of a, you know reflective perspective. Policy making is something that uh, government does, and government's policy is meant to provide a guarantee, if you will, that this is what the government is committed to do. little bit within a bureaucratic framework but what we facing is a context that is changing so fast so on one way you need to be much more iterative reflective looking at what's going on and change the way you do business that's not that's that's a reflection but other point you know in terms of policies we have plethora of policies i'm sure <laughs> you know you and p i have you know done that Uh, we have plethora policy and they look good on papers thanks to those who have crafted those policies but how are we doing it in the field how are we applying you know those policy into practice that i think is the center point that's what i think we need to we need to hit and question and you know critique and get into more conversation and dialogues i don't think we have done well in terms of implementing policies i was looking at uh, the the mofe's website You know there are about twenty nine, twenty twenty nine, thirty you know, documents that we have prepared. We have done well. We understand the problem. You know we looked at risk, we looked at vulnerability, we looked at what's going on in you know different different areas of Nepal, but perhaps not translated effectively into 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 practice. Have we changed the way we build roads, for example? No. Have we really considered the things of flood? To some extent, yes. We have now. early warning systems hmm. in place where lives have been saved compared to maybe 10 years ago so that's a good news and this is a partnership between the government agency there's a partnership between community there's a partnership with the private sector telephone service providers both ntc and the private sector so this is an innovation and good news you know we've done it you know there's something we have to be very proud of but much more needs to be done you know much more needs to be done because we constrict the flow we narrow the river river does not have flow, you know space to flow and then of course you know when you have extreme rainfall in the watershed and you have constricted flow you're going to get more floods mm-hmm. and that's what that's what happened in uh, pakistan the weather attribution group looked at the uh, events they said yes climate change has exacerbated the extreme events but but the damage was also exacerbated by what they call outmoded river management mechanism outmoded river management system so therefore so therefore it's just not the sky that is changing but i think we also need to look at our how own we practice, uh, how we respond how we have done and how we change our uh, way of doing business way of doing things to suit this emerging reality And on that note, um, we, we come to the end of the first part of my discussion with Ajay. Thank you, Samitra.
Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the conversation between Salmitra and Ajay on the topic of COP27 and the issue of loss and damage as well as what climate change means for countries like Nepal and the Himalayan region. Catch the next episode where the two continue to discuss the plausibility of Nepal's net zero emission goal, the impact of climate change on Nepal's water, energy and infrastructural development, and the way forward from the prevalent state of water resource planning and development in Nepal and the South Asian region. Today's episode is part of the conversation. It is part of the series, The Present and the Future of Nepal's Water and Energy Sectors. It was produced by Nirjan Rai with support from Saurabh Lama and Kushi Hang. The episode was recorded at PEI Studio and edited by Nirjan Rai. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakyo from Zindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. And to catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at Tweet2PEI. That's Tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs, Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Tedon, and we'll see you soon in our next episode.